You are listening to Combat Ineffective, The War Room. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Combat Ineffective, The War Room. And today we're going to be talking about something that I've actually wanted to put down as a video, but I actually could not find enough footage to make a video of this um, based on the weapons that I was looking at. One thing I want to talk about today is specifically dealing with China and they're wanting to stop a weapon sale going to Taiwan. Now, if you're not familiar with what's going on with that and why this is a problem, China considers Taiwan to be part of mainland China. They consider it to be one of their territories, one of their islands. And Taiwan goes, nope, you didn't conquer us when we were the Republic of China. We moved over here. You haven't taken it over. Therefore, we're our own independent country. Now, are they actually saying that openly that they're their own independent country? No, they're not. And mainly the reason for that is every time they even so much as threaten that, China sits there and goes, yeah, we're going to invade you. If you do that, we'll take you over. Now, China doesn't want to do that for a lot of reasons. The, the biggest reason is usually an aircraft carrier of ours that would come over there and absolutely just kill them. Uh, I, could they deal with some of with one of our aircraft carrier strike groups? Yeah, I'm sure they probably could, but not three. And we know this because the Chinese fully admitted it as much uh, during one of the uh, during one of the battle exercises we had with multinational partners out there. We brought in three of them, and the Chinese publicly stated. That, yeah, they could t handle one, maybe two, but definitely not three. And if you look at their numbers, if you look at what their Navy is capable of, yeah, that's probably about spot on. Uh, right now, China does have a fairly good-sized Navy, but they can't deal with three Nimitz-class carriers coming at them. Uh, just the carriers alone would be bringing enough firepower to probably deal a significant dent to any invasion plans that they may have. And that's not including what would also be coming to the table very shortly after, including stuff like the Air Force coming in to defend, um, coming in to defend Taiwan itself. Maybe we would be coming in from Japan or Korea or the Philippines or possibly even from Taiwan itself where we would probably try to come up with a deal where we would defend them on the land. But that is not what this one's about. No, no, no. China is very angry that we want to provide Taiwan with the ability to slightly defend themselves. And that's because of one weapon system. Not a bunch of them, one weapon system. And it's the AGM-84 Slammer. That is called the AGM-84 SLAM-ER. That ER stands for Extended Range. Now, the AGM-84 is a weapon that most people, if you know anything about the military, should know what it is. It's actually the, uh, it's actually the nomenclature for the Harpoon Anti-Ship Missile. Well, the company that makes it, and I believe it's Lockheed that is the current contractor on them, has created a version that could not only be uh, fired at land targets, but also has about 150 mile range. And if you look at the distance that crosses the, the straits there between Taiwan and mainland China, it's less than 150 miles, which means China would actually have the ability as long as they've got a way to data link it to something that can see the target, they can fire and actually hit something in mainland China. This is what China is worried about. Uh, although I don't know why they're too, they're so worried about it. This disparity is just, it's ludicrous if you look at all of the stuff that China has. Let's give you an idea of what we're talking about. So we're going to go with their army, just with the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, and their amount of equipment that they've got. Main battle tanks, 5,650. Light tanks and assault guns, 1,450. 
Amphibious fighting vehicles, 950. Infantry fighting vehicles, 6,700. And the list just goes on. Armored APCs, 3,950. Anti-tank missile carriers, 1,230. Towed artillery, 1,234. Self-propelled, 3,600. Anti-aircraft artillery, 7,396. Surface-to-air missiles, excluding man pads, 1,531. MRL systems, 1,770, and 1,243 helicopters of all varying different types. Everything ranging from um, transport helicopters to, you know, ground attack helicopters. That's just their army. Now, are they going to send their entire army after them? Of course not. They're going to, you know, they're going to deal with a certain area. And more than likely, it's only going to be one sector of one command of the PLA that would be doing it. They have a bunch of different commands, just like most militaries do. They usually break up their different command centers based on region and what they need in those areas. And the one that controls most of the area around Taiwan is the eastern one, is the Eastern Theater Command. And what's interesting is both the PLA and the PLA Navy both have the same area for their Eastern Theater Command. So that means they're only probably dealing with one command on this, but you know it as well as I do. You can move units around, you can move stuff around that you need. So what are we looking at when it comes to their their, you know, to the Republic of China, aka Taiwan? Well, I'm gonna go into their air force a little bit. Their air force has and I'm not even making these numbers up. They do have some they do have some fairly modern aircraft, but not all of them are. Uh, they do have 113 F-16As with 56 of the F-16 Vipers on order right now. They have 46 Mirage 2000s, which Mirage 2000s are old aircraft. They have 26 F-5Es and the RF-5Es. Um, these are 1950s era aircraft. Then Taiwan has their own indigenous fighter that they made. And I, I'm just going to say what the uh, variant is called. I did not name this. It's called the F-CK-1C. I will spell I will let you spell that out for yourselves. That one is hilarious to me. So when you look at that, that's that's an okay fighting force, but you know, it's not really that big. I mean, you're talking maybe 113 F16s. That's their best fighter that they've got in 103 of their indigenous fighter. So when you're looking at that, okay, They've got something that they can deal with. And the only uh, weapon system that can actually fire the AGM-84 Slammer at that range are going to be the new versions of the F-16, the Viper variant. They're the only ones that can carry it and fire it. Uh, they are trying to get some ground-based launchers. Again, that's uh, another one of the sticking points. But that's going to be, you know, those are going to be a little bit easier to hit. Because, uh, you know, they can't move as fast. But if they've got them, they might be using those as well. Uh, but it's the F-16 Viper along with this AGM-84 Slammer is the biggest problem. So what's the PLA worried about? And this is something that no one can really explain of what they are really worried about. Because this is the list of the PLA's Army aircraft. This is their main air force, and this isn't even talking about their navy, which is going to be probably bringing to this fight, if they have one, at least one, if not two, of their aircraft carriers. They can't carry that much, but they still have an air force with it. But when we look at this, they have 150 plus of the J-20, 468 of the J-10. Now, the J-10 is... Uh, they've been selling it all over the place. The J-10 is actually kind of like their version of the F-16. It's not a bad fighter. It's actually fairly decent. 
And then they have the J11 and the J16. These are just variants of the SU-27 and the SU-30. And China has 570 of these. Just with the J-10 and the J-11 alone, they have more than enough aircraft to completely overwhelm all of the air defenses along with the entire Air Force of Taiwan. And that's not including everything. Like I said, that's not all of the aircraft that they've got. They've got 24 of the Su-35. They have another 388 of the J-7, which is a MiG. It's essentially a, it's a, a copy of the MiG-21. You've got pretty much everything else that a modern air force would have, including transport aircraft, everything, everything you would need for an air air assault or for airborne invasion. Uh, they have helicopters. They have plenty of them. So. I'm trying to figure out here what China is actually worried about. I mean, just their jet, one of their jet trainers alone has more numbers than the entire the entirety of the best of the uh, Taiwanese Air Force, and that's their Hongdu JL-8. There's 170 of them. Now, I'm not saying that they're going to go over there, take some jet trainers, and defeat Taiwan. No, Taiwan does have good fighter pilots. Uh, they've been able to withstand and defeat uh, China time and time again. Matter of fact, the first kill of a MiG-15 was a Taiwanese fighter pilot flying a P-47, a World War II P-47, shot down the, at that time, the most modern jet aircraft in the world, the MiG-15. When we had a hard time in South Korea dealing with those before we had the F-86 Sabres. So, they're not slouches. They do know what they're doing. And they do have quite a few weapon systems in their possession. They have quite a few different air defense weapons. They have a, a sizable navy. But nothing compared to the size of the PLA. So, it gets me to think, be thinking, what's the real purpose here? Are they actually trying to stop... Taiwan from just being able to slightly defend themselves. When I've looked at everything that's going on over there and how fast China might be able to get across the Straits of Formosa and invade, and I'm not talking uh, an amphibious operation. Amphibious operation would be a nightmare for everybody involved, mainly because you could probably see that fleet forming up well before they're launched. But if you're trying to launch, say, an airborne invasion, launch, you know, paratroopers in to take key points, you don't have long. Like I said, it's 150 miles. Yeah, you might be able to see them coming, but if they send, you know, some 200 fighters, maybe another, you know, 20 to 30 transport aircraft along with being able to fire their own ballistic missiles and long-range missiles that they've got, I don't really see that the amount that the uh, slammer does that much of a difference. Now, China does know that the United States does have a responsibility by law in the United States to sell weapons to Taiwan. This is actually something that's been in the uh, in the laws of the United States for many years at this point, uh, we do believe in a an independent Taiwan. Although we go back on the whole thing of whether or not we want them to declare their independence, that's something that goes back and forth. But I want you to listen to this of what the contract is and how many they're trying to get, because it's really. Uh, really kind of absurd. Let's see. Okay. And it looks like Biden's just did a different one. But first Taiwan arms sale in Biden administration is approved. So we're going to click this one and see what's involved in it. See what they're sending. It's $750 million. It includes 40 M109 self-propelled howitzers. 
that with kits that would be able to allow them to fire more precise GPS guided munitions. But it is not talking about the slammers right now. I'm trying to find where that is. That was just about to be approved by the uh, by the Trump administration. Um, here it is. Okay. It says, the new package follows high-profile sales to Taiwan approved in the last year of the Trump administration, including 66 new model F-16 Block 70 aircraft from Lockheed Martin. Okay, those F-16 Block 70 aircraft are the F-16 Viper. Uh, those are the most modern version of the F-16. They're supposedly very, very good aircraft. And there's a potential of a $2.4 billion sale of Boeing's Harpoon anti-ship missiles for coastal defense. Those are going to be on land-based uh, land-based launchers, not on ship-based. Another package was 135 of the Slammer, the Slam extended range land attack missiles from Boeing, valued at a billion dollars. 436 million for the HIMARS mobile, mobile artillery rocket system and 367 million in surveillance and reconnaissance sensors from Raytheon to be mounted on aircraft. So, you're talking 135 of the slam. How many aircraft did I say that China had? Oh yeah, still way more than that. You're talking that even with this, the only aircraft that will be able to fire the slammer will be the 66 F-16 Block 70s. They're the only ones that will be capable of firing this thing. So you're talking 66 aircraft and 135 slammers. Sounds to me like they might be able to carry one to two at a time, one or two of them, and that's it. So if you load up all of them at once, they might be able to fire all 135 of these things. Uh, obviously, I'm not doing the math right now, but let's take a look. I think that's 132. So that means they'll have three spares. So that means if they fire even one of these on a live fire test, they've just dropped down their numbers significantly. Yeah, 132 is enough to load the load two of these on an F-16. So again, what is China really worried about here? Are they worried that they actually can somewhat slightly defend themselves? Because they've actually uh, stated that any any of these companies that goes through with this, they're going to put sanctions on them. Uh, matter of fact, China said that they would stop buying Boeing aircraft and pretty much go either with theirs or Airbus exclusively at that point. Now, China, now Boeing, you would think, would probably go, that's no big deal. But the 737 is one of the biggest selling aircraft in the world. And after everything that has gone on with the 737 Max, where it was, you know, the computers were essentially turning them into lawn darts, they probably need any sale that they can get right now. Uh, their 787s, I don't think they're coming up with the same sales numbers as they're supposed to. Uh, they're trying to get the new version of the 777 out there, which is supposed to be even bigger than the last one was, especially now since they're not making 747s anymore, at least not that I know of, they're probably very worried about trying to make sure that they can get enough uh, commercial civilian aircraft sold. They're not worried about military aircraft. They've got quite a few different contracts. I mean, they've got the, uh, the, case, the, the uh, new tanker deal is theirs. They still have... I believe the C-17 and also the C-5 are theirs. All of the AH-64 Apaches are all Boeing aircraft. So if they're ever buying any, if the U.S. military or anyone else is buying them, either they're paying a license to Boeing or they're buying them straight from Boeing to be uh, for them to build them. So they're not going to lose anything. They're not going to lose any sleep on the military side. That's for sure. But the commercial side, that might cause them to pause on this deal. And again, that would only be for the Slammer. It would not be for anything else. The HIMARS is made by Lockheed, and Lockheed, I don't think, cares. I think they would just give one finger to China and go, we don't really sell anything to you anyway, so why are we bothering with it? I mean, just having the HIMARS does not give you that much. Yeah, you might be able to stop 
a land invasion coming in. But that's about it. You're not talking that many of these things. Any of you that are familiar with the HIMARS and what it is, the HIMARS is basically a slimmed down version of the old MLRS that we had. The HIMARS is just a, it can either fire one of the ATACMs or it can fire six of the standard uh, standard MLRS, MLRS size rockets. It can't fire the full two pack, uh, two blocks of them, basically two slammer, uh, two uh, ATACMs or 12 of the uh, standard rockets like the MLRS can. So it's just, it's just a uh, mobile artillery rocket system. They're very accurate and they're very effective, but the AT- unless they're selling them the ATACMs with it, and again, they might be only selling them a few of these things, even if they're selling them maybe they can reach across but you're talking a country you know the size of China they're going to have their own air defense systems as well and they're not going I mean you're going to say that you're going to be able to fire these things and they're going to get through all the air defenses including stuff like the S-300 and the S-400s that's not going to happen I mean you're you're talking the might of mainland China with I believe at this point they have the second largest military in the world, maybe even the first largest at this point, and they're worried about 135 missiles. Someone just needs to tell them, yeah, no, the sale's going through, we don't care what you do, deal with it, because we're not going to let this country just get taken over without you f- without firing a shot. That's just not going to happen you know that there are going to be consequences to deal with if you invade there. And we want to make sure that in some ways there is a threat that you have to deal with. I mean, when you're dealing with a fleet, and this is the fleet that Taiwan would have to deal with, they are dealing with two aircraft carriers, the Liaoning and the Shandong. And both of them are active right now. The Shandong, I believe, is just finishing up their... uh, uh, their trials. I don't believe it's fully out there. There's a Type 003 that is supposed to be commissioned in 2023. So in two years, they're going to have another aircraft carrier. Then you have for their amphibious transport docks, they've got, you know, one, two, three, looks like eight of them. They have a bunch of landing ships. And then you have their destroyers. Their destroyers right now completely outnumber the entire Taiwanese Navy. The Taiwanese Navy has, I think, four, if not five destroyers, and they're all USS Kidd class destroyers. So they're old. These things are the Type 55, Type 52, uh, and even they have old Soverman, uh, Sovermany class Russian destroyers that they bought in 2006. And I'm looking at where they actually are stationing these things, um, whether they're on the East Fleet or not. Right now, the carriers are one on the North Fleet and one on the South Sea Fleet. They can easily move those. That's not a problem. When you're looking at their amphibious ships, they've got two of their transport docks, excuse me, three of them, right on the cha- right on the East Sea Fleet, with their newest one being built right there and on the East Sea Fleet. You have plenty of landing ships that are there. You have at least three or four of those. Um, that's just a, one of the types of landing ships. They've got all of those. You've got, for their Type 52 destroyers, you've got one, two, three, five. Looks like eight, maybe nine of their Type 52 class destroyers on the East Sea Fleet. They have all four of their Silvermany class on the East Sea Fleet. So they've arrayed a very large amount of their force on the East Sea Fleet. They're ready to go to combat. And most of these are active, they're saying. They're not saying that they're in dry dock being repaired or anything. And this is just including those. This isn't going into their frigates, which... That's an even larger amount than what the Repu- 
what the uh, Republic of China has. That's the name for Taiwan. It's ludicrous that they're even trying to think about 135 missiles being a threat to them. So I don't know. This is something that I've seen, and a lot of countries will do this, where they'll make a big fuss about one weapon system. And when you look at what's really going on, it has nothing to do with anything going on. That It's not really that big of a threat. They just want to try and take out one thing that might be the biggest worry that they have. It's not going to stop them. I mean, if China is really worried that's going to stop them, then I really wonder what the quality of the Chinese military is at this point. If 135 mil, uh, 35 missiles would be enough to stop an entire invasion force from going across. Uh, I mean, you're talking your ballistic missiles, your fighter aircraft, and everything else you've got isn't enough to take out Taiwan in probably a matter of days. I doubt it would even take a week at this point. You're talking 150,000 troops going up against the might of China. I don't think that's going to last very long. I really don't think that they would be able to withstand it. So, this is where I just get very annoyed and just wonder, why are we even acknowledging, why are we even entertaining China's insistence that we do not sell these weapons to Taiwan? Why are we even listening to it? Because, I mean, if that was the biggest problem out there, uh, that there are way worse ones that are that they could have a problem with. They already know that they are trying to defeat the Russians in selling equipment all over the world, but they're worried about 135 missiles. So, kind of makes me wonder whether all of these numbers that China has, and they have some big and gratuitous-sized numbers of troops, ships, aircraft, missiles, you name it, but this is what their fear is. And I don't even know if in the amount of time that they could come across that strait and start to attack, how fast it would take for us to, for us as the United States or any of their allies over there would be able to come to their aid. It takes some time. You know, it, it takes time to mobilize troops. It takes time to get fleets ready for combat like that. Yeah, you can probably do something in a matter of a moment's notice, but it still takes time to get yourself into a combat footing. And this is something that most civilians don't understand. You can't just take an aircraft carrier, put it into an area, and 20 minutes later start launching a bunch of airstrikes and say that your guys are 100% ready for combat. They're not. They're going to be very quickly getting to that because we drill that stuff. But to say that they're ready for a full-on conflict? No, that's, that's just... That's just absurd to even think this. I kind of think that China is still worried about their own nightmare of when they actually invaded Vietnam back in 1979. By the way, if you've not looked into this, this is probably one of the strangest wars you'll ever see. A lot of people probably look at the Vietnam War and go, oh yeah, Vietnam was supported by the Soviet Union and by communist China. Yes and no. See, China supported them only because they were trying to get a little bit more prestige for themselves with the Vietnamese people. And that's all they were doing. They actually, China actually supported one of Vietnam's adversaries. They supported the Khmer Rouge. They supported the worst dictatorship that has ever existed in Cambodia. And when the Khmer Rouge began taking over Cambodia, Vietnam, North Vietnam, decided to put a stop to it. So they invaded and very quickly were able to take out the Khmer Rouge. It took them a little while because they're not a modern fighting force, even at that time. Uh, they pretty much were fighting similar to how they fought in the Vietnam War. But they were still able to take them out. China took offense to that and decided to invade Vietnam. And 
from all indications, both sides claim victory. But if you look at the numbers and look at everything going on, China sent about 150,000 troops in. And from what uh, other outsiders are estimating, both sides lost about 15,000 troops. So China at that time was trying to become basically the big country in the region. They were trying to show that they were the power brokers, not the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union actually ignored the whole thing. They didn't want a war there. They didn't want to deal with China because they've had skirmishes with China as well in that time period. There was actually a couple border skirmishes that have happened. So they just didn't want to deal with it. They were like, leave us out of it. We've got our own problems to deal with. And both China and Vietnam had a border war. It didn't last long, like I said. But it changed the PLA in more ways than one. For one, they realized that their command and control was terrible. They didn't know how to actually conduct a proper invasion. They didn't know what they were doing. Uh, their rations for their troops was horrendous. I've seen the looks of the uh, food that they sent their troops. And it, I mean, to be honest with you, I kind of wonder if prisoners get better food Uh than the Chinese military did at the time. Uh, their equipment was pretty much broken down, not working well. They would have had, they would have had tanks and stuff because it sounds like they brought about 400 tanks with them. But those tanks would have been T-55s, T-62s, and that's about it. I mean, Vietnam knows how to deal with those. They had to deal with ours. So they know how to deal with a tank. It's not that hard. The aircraft that the Chinese would have brought with them would have been some helicopters, maybe MI-17s. Those aren't the best helicopters. And again, Vietnam knows how to shoot down helicopters. They were doing it for about 20 years. So they know how to deal with that. Uh, the aircraft that would be coming in would be maybe MiG-21s, maybe some MiG-15s. Nothing big. And that's the same stuff that Vietnam would have had. So with all of that, with the ghosts of 1979, I really wonder if the Chinese military is just nothing but a paper tiger at this point. Yeah, you've got some big numbers. You've got huge amount of troops. Guess who also has a large amount of troops and can't really do anything with them? North Korea. The only thing we're worried about with North Korea is their nuclear weapons. That's it. The rest of it, we can fight that. South Korea is not afraid to fight them. They just don't want to have so many people, so many casualties from the opening artillery barrages from both sides. I mean, both countries would have damage that would last for generations on it. You're talking hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people would die just because of the opening artillery barrage on both sides. That's not even including an actual invasion of either one which neither side could probably would probably want to afford. Both sides, it would be a Pyrrhic victory if they won. Yeah, they won, but what is the cost? And the cost is just going to be just unimaginable. So my guess here is that the reason that China is worried about 135 missiles is that we could take out, well, excuse me, Taiwan could take out some of the key components of their command. Maybe they can take out one of the carriers. Maybe they can take out some of the air defense systems that are on mainland China and launch their own attacks. Those would be the worrying points. Maybe they're worried that it would slow them up enough that the U.S. could bring over one of the carrier strike groups and all of a sudden they have a problem to deal with because we would tell them to leave. The only way that China wins a war against Taiwan is if they can get boots on the ground before we can mount a counteroffensive ourselves. Because as soon as we try to, the sanctions that are going to come afterward would be tremendous. You know it, we've seen it. Would we try to mount an invasion to take it back if they took the whole thing? Probably not. I don't know if we would actually have the capability to do it. Taiwan's a very big island, but Doing an island invasion, an amphibious operation of that magnitude would be incredibly costly, especially against, again, a modern military like China. And China at that point would be dug in. They would be able to hold the, the land, they'd be able to hold the coastlines. 
And again, they have a good size Air Force. And their J-11s seem to be fairly capable aircraft. Their J-20, I don't know how good that one is. It, it, you know, There's varying reports of how well the stealth works on that. I don't think they want to test that thing against, say, an F-22 or an F-35 just yet. I, I think they're still worried that we might be able to clean them from the sky. But the J-11s, the J-10s, there are so many of those. Even if we brought a couple carriers out there, the F-18s, they're okay aircraft. And yeah, we can vector them in good, but we would take casualties. We would take losses. And I don't believe we would be able to move enough F-15s and F-16s to deal with that. And again, we would lose a lot of them in the airstrikes and in all the uh, close air support that we would need to do the invasion. And we wouldn't be able to bring in stuff like A-10s. A-10s would take too long to get there from even some of the closer areas, like, say, China, uh, not China, say, uh, South Korea or Japan. They would have to fly over, probably get in air refueled, both coming in and leaving. They're slow. And unless they brought in tanks, the, the uh, A-10s probably aren't going to be that useful. Yeah, they can do some airstrikes, but they're too slow for that type of combat area, and they would take heavy losses from air defense weapons that the Chinese would bring with them. So, I don't know. This is this is one of those things that I've always been wondering about, and like I said, I wanted to do a video on this, and when I was trying to, I just couldn't find enough footage of the stuff that I wanted. There's really not enough footage of the AGM-84 Slammer that I could have used for it to show what this thing is capable of. Oh, right now we are at the point in the episode where I go in and actually answer some comments that I've received. And I'm going to go into, let's see, let me go into my content here because I've got a bunch of different uh, videos right now. I have not put up the newest one just yet on YouTube. Uh, that's going to take a couple more days, so I don't have any comments on it really just yet. But I'm going to go into the first one. Let's see here. And i got to take off that filter. I want all of them, not just that. So, Russell, you were saying, and I'm guessing in reply to somebody, uh, probably would have been a lot easier to disable vehicles' equipment so they can't be used in Afghanistan. Yes, I do agree with that. You might be able to disable it, but you have to have people on the ground to do that and have to be in place to do it. Uh, easier said than done, uh, especially if you think that the force that you're that is there uh, is supposed to be using that stuff and using it effectively. Uh, you don't want to take out pieces of equipment if the fight's going well or if it looks like you can win it. If you can't win it, you're just not going to do it. So there's that one. Let me see. We've got. I'm going to go to another one. I did get a question on Telegram a couple days ago, and I'm trying to open up Telegram to look at it. It was dealing with the Japanese attack on Midway. And this is from my friend Corsi, and it says, uh, I have a topic for you, Pearl Harbor. Japan completely screwed up that attack. They had chances to take out strategic ships and completely failed. The attack on Midway was also an absolute failure for Japan, too. They didn't send enough to attack Midway on the first attack. They were known to be there because the USA decoded their transmissions. The subs showed up late to Hawaii and missed the carriers leaving. So let's answer these one after another. Uh, the first part, yes, they did screw up the attack on Pearl Harbor. The strategic ships wasn't the big problem because at the time, Japan was going based off of their battle plan of what they wanted. You have to look at what their overarching strategy was and what they thought was going to be the end result. What they actually thought was going to happen was that if they had attacked the United States or if the United States declared war on them, and Yama Yamamoto was the one that said this was probably what would happen, the battleship fleet that, they, that the United States had would sail out of Pearl Harbor and they would go up against the Japanese Navy force on force in some just tremendous surface action. Now, the aircraft carriers, yes, 
Japan knew that we had two aircraft carriers that were sitting in Pearl Harbor. They knew that's where they were based. The reason they didn't get them was because they decided that they were going to move aircraft to Wake Island. Because they knew if there was an invasion, if there was a war, Wake Island was going to be the first place that was going to be hit. And if you look at where it is, Wake Island, uh, Japan actually considered, at least at the time, they considered Wake Island to be one of their home islands. So, and with where it is, out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, if they were cut off, they had to have some supplies there because otherwise they were not going to get relieved anytime soon. But that wasn't the big problem from the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. They did enough damage to the ships. The, the battleship fleet was essentially sunk and out of action for months, if not years, at that point. Um, they did actually refloat quite a few of them and get them back out into the fight. But not all of them. Obviously, the Arizona was one that was never re refloated. But I believe the Utah was. I know the Nevada was because the Nevada uh, almost sailed out of the harbor and was torpedoed and then pushed out of the channel by, I believe, some tugs that were bravely trying to move it out of the way so it didn't block up Pearl Harbor's entrance completely with a giant battleship sunk there. But the Nevada, the reason I know that that lasted was because it was used in one of the atomic bomb tests. In fact, you can see the ship pretty much up in the air. The Arkansas also was another one that was straight up in the air and actually was lifted off of the water and then slammed back down. So some of those ships were still sailing after the war was over, just not very long. What the Japanese needed to attack was there were two key areas that they needed to attack in Pearl Harbor. The first was our ammunition storage. The ammo storage areas were lightly defended, and yes, it was a strategic point, but they weren't even bombed. The next part, which would have been even more crucial, was the fuel supplies. The fuel stores that would have been able to fuel up all of the ships, aircraft, everything else, weren't touched. If you're planning on doing an invasion, you need to stop the enemy from having the ability to wage war. And if they can't move their ships out of their own harbor because they don't have fuel, that pretty much makes them just floating artillery pieces and that's it. They can't defend anything out at sea. Now, now I'm going to answer the attack on Midway. They didn't send a lot to Midway because Midway was basically just a stopping point. There wasn't really much that was defending it. Yeah, we had some stuff there, but it, there wasn't really much that was defending it. And the aircraft that we had on Midway Island really were ineffectual in the entire fight. We had B-17s that did try to do some strategic bombing runs, basically high level high altitude level bombing runs over the Japanese fleet and they failed. They didn't hit a single thing. When you're flying at 20, 30,000 feet and you try to trap a bomb on a moving target in the water, it's very difficult. I know battleships and carriers look like they're very big targets, but the higher up you go, those things get smaller and smaller and you're trying to, again, hit something that's going to be zigzagging in the ocean and try to hit it from 30,000 feet when that bomb is going to take quite a few seconds to come down. So unless you know exactly where he's going to go and you know how the winds are going to act as it's coming down, good luck in trying to hit that moving target. With the regards to the radio message, they didn't know that the messages were being decoded. They thought that their <coughs> naval codes were completely secured. Yes, somebody probably should have wondered why Midway Island saying that they were out of fresh water was sent over unencrypted lines, but they didn't. And after the successes at Pearl Harbor and the thought that there might be only one aircraft carrier, maybe two, that the Americans have left, and that is all that they have to defend Midway Island with, you're going to get confident. Overconfident, if I might say. 
So they didn't think, for one, that there were going to be three aircraft carriers, uh, let alone three aircraft carriers, going to Midway Island. They had no idea they were there. They also misinterpreted where they thought the Americans would be setting up. They thought the Americans would either be south or east of the island, not very far north. And the Americans came in from the north. Yes, Midway Island is north of Pearl Harbor. And yes, you would have to travel north to get there and then go further north. That's where they set up. That's where Admiral Spruance decided to set up the fleet, along with Admiral Halsey. I think Halsey was in command of it, but it could have also been Spruance. They were both there. Sending them in to that area completely threw off the entire Japanese battle plan. And since they're not looking in the area, and the ocean's a very wide area, uh, especially in the Pacific out in the middle of nowhere, you have to be able to find it through the cloud layers and everything else and be able to get back. The Japanese originally could not find the American fleet. And yes, you are correct. The submarines got there late and didn't see the carriers leaving. They thought they were still there because they weren't going to go into the harbor with those submarines. They would have been sunk and there goes your intel of what you have. So the fact that they did not know that the carriers were already there near Midway was the first problem. The second problem was that they were having radio issues with some of their first scout aircraft that they sent, including the one that actually found the American fleet. So if you don't have comms, if you don't know that yeah, they're here, and now you've got to turn around with this plane. And these aren't jets. These things are going to take some time to get back to the aircraft carrier. Or back to the battleship, because I think these were float planes, to be honest. And that means they have to land next to the battleships. Or land next to the capital ship and be craned back aboard before you can give your briefing of, Yep, they're here. This is where they are. And by the time that had already happened, the Americans had already sighted the Japanese fleet and started launching their attacks. So, once that happened, the luck of the Americans being able to launch their attacks and sink the carriers the way they did, and there was a lot of luck involved in that. The torpedo bombers came in first and were completely just wiped out. Uh, the torpedo bombers didn't really have a chance. But that delay and the fact that now their cap aircraft have to come back in and they're trying to find out, okay, we have a an enemy carrier fleet here. And then what do you have to do? Are you going to keep some of your planes up because there might be another attack but we think we defeated them or are you going to rearm your planes reload them with fuel for the new attack and as soon as they made that decision and started bringing their planes back aboard and these things uh, the flat tops of that time very narrow they don't have the slanted deck like say ours do now they were just a straight up runway you have to land all the planes forward, bring them down below the decks, or land them on the deck, and push them as far back as possible, load them, and then take off. The, uh, the Even if they had catapults, which I don't believe they did, the catapults could only launch one or two at a time, and you had to get the entire flight off. Uh, it, it takes up the entire runway of the aircraft carrier for uh, that time period. Once that happened, and the dive bombers were coming in. It was pretty much over. The biggest mistake was once they were taken out, the Japanese lost most of their experienced pilots. Pretty much the cream of the best of the Japanese Navy's Air Force was sunk there in Midway Island. So did they have a screw up there? Yes, but that's, you know, that's kind of what happened there. Uh, I would like to ask other people if you're, uh, if you want to send in any comments. Look on all of my videos, send up a comment. If I see them, I do try to respond, and I want to make this a thing on here. 
I want to do this response. Uh, I want to do these live responses on the podcast because I kind of think this is a much better way to get in contact with you, the audience, and it also allows me to answer many other questions that you may have that don't even have to deal with the topic that we're dealing with at that point. Uh, I like doing that. I like doing these comments, these uh, topics that I'm doing. But maybe you're not interested in that as much. And these gives me, uh, this gives me ideas for future videos. That's why I like di- having different comments. So be sure when you see any of my videos or on my podcast, be sure to comment on them. Um, if you are looking to support this channel, be sure to take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash combat ineffective i will have the link in the description for this podcast and it will be in the link for in the description for all the videos uh check us out on twitter we do have a twitter page and you can find us at combat in effect one we also do have a discord server if anyone wants to join discord and that is actually one of the one of the added benefits of becoming a Patreon member, we do have our own private uh, Discord channels for all of you, including the different levels, whether it be Sergeant, Captain, or General. And if you join in as a General, uh, the, the gifts that we give you as a thank you for joining, uh, they're incredible. I've seen them from other people that have gotten them, and they are high-quality uh, high quality gifts for all of you on that. So be sure to take a look at that. I want to thank everybody that has helped out in the past week or two. Our Twitter account has exploded and we are well over 200 followers on Twitter. We are actually at 214 followers. Uh, I can't thank you enough for all of that. I want to thank my Patreon sponsors that are out there, uh, including my generals Richie and Sergio Suarez. I thank you for that. I want to say that uh, to there's a couple people that sent a birthday card to me. I wanted to say on this podcast that yes, I did receive that. You'll be getting a notification from me personally on that, but I wanted to put it out here that yes, I did get that. So I want to thank you all for listening to this. This is Combat Ineffective, The War Room, and this is just my thoughts today. So I will see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.